Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. This is the 50th episode of the Weed Week podcast. You can subscribe to our newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week California, and Weed Week Canada, all at weedweek.net. They're all free. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. And got any feedback? Write to us at hello at weedweek.net. You know, I, I don't feel like we've aged very much. It feels like we're spring chickens at this podcast thing. Do you not think that? No. I mean, if anything, we're getting more youthful. Oh, my God. How do we pull that off? But we've got a great interview, right? Who's the, who do we have? Today, we have an interview with Julia Barajas, who's a journalist with Cannabis Wire, which is a great cannabis publication out of New York. But she's here in L.A. with us. She comes into our Hollywood studio, and she tells us about her reporting in LA and in much of Latin America, where there's a lot of cannabis stories as well. And well what I love about her being on is like, we've got an actual LA homegirl here. You know, we, we had a guest on very recently from Orange County, but this is someone who's, you know, representing LA. We don't get that a whole bunch. No, it's, it's not, not, the, not from the Latino perspective. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. This is our 50th episode and we're very proud of that. And we've also just relaunched our Patreon account. So in case you don't know, Patreon is sort of a way that you can give us a little money every month, sort of like NPR, and we send you things in return. So for as little as $2 a month, you'll be getting one sort of bonus podcast episode a month. Mm -hmm. And then we've got some other swag, some, some cool bags. And then if you give us $25 a month, we've got this really cool auto machine, which is sort of a an automatic grinder and cone filler. And it it works really well. It's pretty cool. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's worth $129, and we give it to you for a $25 a month, monthly contribution, in and, addition to some great swag. Right, in addition to the extra episodes and the cool stuff that you're not going to name here, but it's pretty cool. Pretty cool Singular, stuff. let's say. Have you tried the auto? No, no, I don't know how it works. I, I, it looks like something I would want to have, but it strikes me as a luxury item. I aspire to have an auto. Okay, like well... It works surprisingly well. It really gets the job done, and you can put together a, a joint very cleanly. And Is it a time saver? I mean, I think it's a time saver. It's a, you know, it's compact. It's it's very impressive. Okay, well, I'll check it out. I'll borrow yours. Okay, <laughs> or yeah. I'll, maybe I'll contribute to Weed Week. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about old people. Yeah. So you found this story. What did what did it say? Oh, it's a story that actually I think comes from Orange County. Laguna Beach is down there, right? About the seniors who are driving this <laughs> this green rush. In my opinion, I call them the MVP on Twitter. But yeah, there. This is a this is an AP story, so it's not especially revelatory. My favorite thing about it is a quote where a 76 year old retired beauty products distributor says, "It's like the ultimate." Ultimate senior experience. And the ultimate senior experience, you would actually consume the stuff too. You know? <laughs> so maybe it's the penultimate senior experience. There's a level of joy to the senior experience that we need to talk about more because uh, it beats the hell out of opioids. I think we know that. Yeah. Um, in my Guardian column, I wrote about the mature stoner. And right. it was one of our two best performing columns ever, I think. The other one was what to do if you take too many edibles. You know, this is uh, vaguely related, but I, I, I think it's something worth mentioning. You know, the numbers came up. There was a, I want to say, a PPP poll, public policy polling thing that came out showing the nation's attitudes about pot. And just in the last year, amongst Republicans who tend to be older Americans, it's jumped from 45 to 54 percent in one year, you know. And I, I think about the these older people and the barrier to entry being legality for so many people. 
I mean, if anything, it's a great thing to have at the end of your life. Yeah. So they're the fastest growing demographic of users. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also important to remember that like these aren't your parents' grandparents. These are how do you mean that? These are our grandparents. They were at Woodstock. You know, they they are familiar with marijuana, and a lot of them weren't able to use it during their careers or afraid of drug testing and whatnot. But they don't necessarily have the same attitudes towards cannabis as the previous generation. Like when I when I wrote that story, I asked my grandmother, who's like 101, mm. if she had any interest in medical marijuana. And, and she just simply said no. But the younger generation has a different attitude. Right. And I think it's totally understandable. One of the conversations we have with Julia was about the prohibition ideas that exist in minority communities. And, you know, if you look at how pot was prosecuted back in the day. I'm glad I broke the laws, but a lot of people weren't going to go there, weren't even thinking about it. I mean, if you're in your, if you came up in the 60s, it was a real risk. Yeah. All right. So our guest today is Julia Barajas. She's a reporter with Cannabis Wire, and a former teacher, and she's been handling the SoCal Latin America beat very ably for, for Cannabis Wire. Right. I love Cannabis Wire. And if you don't know Cannabis Wire, they're part of this journalism I guess, consortium called Civil, which is based on blockchain. Mm. And I didn't know that. It's one of these new journalism experiments. So um, we wish them all the luck, of course. Here's Julia. Joining us in the studio today is Julia Barajas. She's a reporter with Cannabis Wire. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I'm so me. glad you came through. I've been reading your stuff. Oh. And, you know, actually, we did a take on a story that you reported on about Fontana and growing. Yeah, yeah I heard it because I was doing my homework. It was episode 33. Because <laughs> 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 there's a question that I never really have had answered, and it's been augmented by what's gone on with some of the lobbying mm -hmm. back east. What's in it for businesses and entities representing them to crack down on growing at home? Well, I guess, talking about Fontana in particular, just generally speaking. Well, I'm thinking about Fontana, but I'm also thinking about, well, I don't know if you we talked yeah. about this, but MedMen and some other companies in New York have been lobbying to limit the number of plants that can be grown at home. What's yeah. the deal well, with that? Well, I think it's just, I think it comes down, and I'm not speaking because I don't have enough information like on their perspective, but I think it has to do with like basic economics, right? But also just like California, like I think to this day, there's so many like small local ordinances that basically disallow everything other than home growing. Mm -hmm. And I think with Fontana, the reason why at Cannabis Wire we were so intrigued by this case is because like... Maybe you could restate it for people because we that was a long time ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically, um, the city of Fontana is like a small, smallish city, depending on, on your point of view, in the county of San Bernardino. So basically what's going on is that there was a, an ordinance kind of to make it really difficult for people to do home grows. Mm -hmm. So by law across the state, um, wherever you are, you're allowed to grow up to six plants per private household. Even in cities or counties where they've banned sales, like both medical and adult use. But in Fontana, they were like, oh, we're going to do all, I mean, this is my point of view, but basically they were imposing all these different requirements on people. And the person who was involved... Well, there were fees, too. There were fees. Like, really high. Like, a lot of different fees. So, like, the one that, that got a lot of coverage was, like, a $411 fee. To right? grow at home. That was one fee that 
was interesting because to get a gun dealer's license was like 120 something. Wow. Yeah. And then there were all these other like weird requirements. Like it had to be a room with no windows and it had to be a room only for your plants. A room with no windows. Um, yeah. Why just plants in the room? What's the idea? Because, well, when I went to, to cover, I went to the, um, what's it called? The court case. I was there. Um, basically, the, the lawyers who were representing the city were saying, you know, like to keep, to keep the children safe. That was their whole thing. Like across the board, that was like pretty much an argument. Mm. It was like to protect the children from seeing the cannabis, well, smelling, smelling the, the cannabis, to play because they're gonna play with it. And as stuff. kids do, yeah. That was a joke. I don't think kids <laughs> play with cannabis. So while well, well, surely we have some listeners in Fontana, but this is also, I think, sort of a stand-in for what's happening in in, Cal- in California at large and probably the country at large too. How so? Where so many cities aren't allowing cannabis businesses and. You know, maybe they're not creating these impossible rules like Fontana is, which were just struck down by a judge. But similar situations are in play all over California totally. and all over the country. Too. Yeah. And Alex is right. But as we talk, I can't help but wonder, what's your background? How did you even come to care about these issues? I was really lucky. I mean, you have a journalism background that's a serious journalism background. I have a journalism background, but actually before that, I was in education for quite some time. So I graduated right on like right on time for the recession, <laughs> and then I got a job at a, a unionized charter school in like the Koreatown area. And you from here? Yeah, well, I'm from LA, but I went to school out in Chicago, and then I moved back home. Wow. And yeah, I just stayed there. I fell in with my kids. I then became an intervention teacher. Then I started doing like administrative work. But I always wanted to be a journalist, so I decided to go back to school. Yeah. And do it all over again. Okay, but you ended up at the Columbia Journalism Review mm-hmm. or Journalism School. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that happen, and how did that affect your take on this industry? Well, I think you weren't really thinking about this industry, were you? No, I <laughs> want to be like a hundred percent honest because I, 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 the reason why I'm saying I'm lucky is because I get to, I've learned so much. I think I was only very superficially like, yeah, I'm down with like, you know, getting rid of prohibition, but. Not to the extent that I know now. So what changes? Okay, so I go. I got. I miraculously got into journalism schools in general because I was like, and I mean this very wholeheartedly. I was like, if I get into one, I'm going, <laughs> you know. Um, and I was like, cool. I got into a couple. That was awesome. I was at Columbia taking a class called Covering Conflict with a really awesome professor who happened to have, I think, if I'm not mistaken, been the professor of my editors at Cannabis Wire, the founders, and she introduced me, and then. When I graduated, it was right around the time that Prop 64 had been passed, and so I got to do some freelance work for them. But I also spent that summer reading about and learning about parents who were using cannabis to treat children with epilepsy. But I also like interviewed a lady who had like fled Venezuela to Mexico to get access to cannabis. This is before everything that's happening now in Venezuela, and I talked to her for a lot, like many hours, and she was telling me like. Her son had gone through so, so much, and that was the only thing that helped him. So it just really, it opened my eyes to, like, a a whole new way of seeing things. And also, like, what you were just saying, Alex, about home cultivation, kind of. It's something that's big here in the U.S., but it's also thing, something that people are fighting for in Chile and in Mexico. And precisely against, like, big companies. They want the right to just grow a few plants at home to take care of their loved ones. And there are a lot of people moving things around so that they can not have that. It's funny. I remember a while ago, one of the, I think Bruce Linton, who's the CEO of Canopy, which is one of the big companies in Canada, was saying sort of home grow. You know, we're fine with home grow because we grow better stuff 
And so people will sort of graduate to our product. But now it's looking, and I don't know Canopy in particular, but it looks like companies in, in other states are sort of sort of worried about home grow. It sounds like home grow could could take a, a really big part of the market. Well, it's really interesting, especially because Canopy, um, as I'm sure you guys know, like they also have expanded to parts of Latin America and the rest of like the world. So, I mean, but they're also like one one key player. But yeah, like that's that's an important consideration mm-hmm. that I mean, for like growing your own plant at home. I actually went to um cuz I wanted to learn about it. To like a home grow workshop in Santa Monica last weekend and it's not easy to grow your own plant like at all. Hmm. Right? So I think that if you're going to go through this like it's because you really do want to take care of your loved ones or whatever, like for whatever you want to use it. That's also I don't want to be like medical, medical. Yeah. You Nobody know? wants to be like that. <laughs> I have a question cuz this is not TV. Uh-huh. I'm black and you're brown. Mm-hmm. And our communities, we started to talk about this on a recent podcast, but they really didn't drill down on it. Sometimes like the most prohibition-minded people tend to be people like us. Can you tell him about that? Totally. So like in my family, for example, I didn't want to be around any kind of drug and I wasn't or alcohol throughout high school. Um, and then I went to college and found out that everybody had, had alcohol and drugs. And well, not everybody, but like 90% of the people there had like experimented but I was under the impression that if I did something wrong, that was it. And like, I wasn't inaccurate. You know, when you think about who's getting locked up, mm. you know, I was not inaccurate. In my family, not in my immediate family, but there are people who have been uh, incarcerated for possession and things like that. And I think when I was a kid, I was like, well, yeah, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You know, like, that's against the law kind of thing. And like, as I got older and I got to learn uh, and think about what laws are and who gets to make laws, you know, your perspective changes a bit. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on how that those attitudes impact issues like expungement and social equity in terms of who participates in coming out of the dark, as you will. There was another really good episode you guys had with Cat Packer, who I basically follow around, right? That's part of my job. Really? Yeah. Why do you follow Cat? Yeah, because I, I cover California and I cover Latin America. What's the most interesting thing about Cat and what she's doing right now? I'm trying to love it because I, I, I don't want to be like a fangirl, but I really like... I don't know, there's a personal, not cannabis wire or whatever, like just on a Julia situation. Um, I, I've gotten to see so many people like call her out on a variety of issues, and I think she's always on point when she responds. And she talked about social equity. And one of the things that I noticed is that wherever she goes, people are like, well, you know what? I'm a woman, and my grandma's Mexican. Why can't I qualify for the social equity program? And then she has to like, you know, calmly explain that it's not about diversity, it's about equity. And she has to kind of do the homework that other people probably should have been doing. Like if we had an education that really delved into racism in this country, right? And she has to do it like in 30 seconds. So in terms of social equity, I think when I was listening to you guys, I like what she said about how licensing, for example, could be a point of departure, but not like what's going to handle the whole, like what needs to be done and how the other things need to be considered. Like, expungement perhaps should be kind of like an automatic thing, but it's not, like, if we look at uh, across the country, as people are putting in legislation, I think people treat issues of social justice, some people, as like a, kind of like, oh, you know, like, all right, fine, we'll kind of consider it, but it's not like the core of it. So it's not taken seriously. Yeah, it's not taken seriously. Um, And I think one of... I don't remember who was the interview, but they were asking, like, why should cannabis have to do this? Why should the cannabis industry have to deal with this? Well, it's because the cannabis industry was involved in the incarceration of and death of a lot of particular groups of people. I've been looking at sort of the, the equity situation for, for a couple of years, and I have a much better sense of 
there being activity and sort of movement towards entrepreneurship in in the black community than mm-hmm. in the latino community mm-hmm. and it may be because i don't speak spanish but can you give us a sense of is there a community of of latino latina entrepreneurs and how are they doing and what are, what are some of some of the challenges they're they're facing there are definitely like a handful i would say there's not a, a whole lot and i think a lot of people have learned from the like like the people in the latino community are, are like learning from the black community in terms of organization and what to do. Um, but I think, let me see. While you're thinking, I want to make clear, we're talking yeah. about legal weed because there's a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah. Lat- no, Latinos. I'm, I'm talking <laughs> we're, we're about like, yeah, like incredibly you're incredibly entrepreneurial. On, yeah, you're, well, you're <laughs> licensed. And that's another thing, right? So getting your license. But I know, for example, and this is again, just like me, like I can't, I mean, I can but if I tell my grandma what I cover, she'll be like, oh, my God, you know, like, ev- like there's a there's still a very big stigma against the plant. You're still in the closet? No, like, I'll, I'll still tell, like, I'll tell people straight out about stuff because I do think it's a... Grandma? But my grandma, like, I'm not... How can I say this? I'm not afraid of her uh, reaction. Um, we're just kind of like, ah. But I, think, I do think it's important to engage people. Uh, mm. With my parents, they get, like, they're, they're learning a lot. They're mm. learning a lot. Mm-hmm. What's the best thing your parents have learned? I talk to them a lot about, because I am very fortunate that I also get to cover Latin America, just about all the the ways in which policy has served, for instance, in, in Mexico, to get people to be in like really horrible conditions for simple possession. And I'm like, oh, like for this amount of, or even here, you know, if even if you have like DACA or something, you get caught with weed, you could still get deported, you know. And when I talk to them about stuff like that, I think they're, I think, basically they're, they're, I'm pushing it with them. Look, deportation issue does not get nearly enough coverage, I'm, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Can you talk about that for people? Because I don't think most people actually know this. Yeah, so because it's still federally prohibited, even if you have, have DACA, for, for example, if you are a childhood arrival and you have a permission to be here for the moment, if you are caught with whatever amount of weed, you can still get deported. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's yet another way in which these disadvantaged communities are, you're right, you're yeah. you're correct to be nervous and prohibitive about use in some situations right yeah exactly and, and mexico is now on on the brink of legalizing oh, or totally so how is that going mexico so what's interesting is that the supreme court has declared that prohibition and not like a medical like that prohibition of cannabis is unconstitutional right this is like now like it's recognized it's jurisprudence and what's happening now is that um legislators are looking at how they're going to regulate the industry and there's like there's a couple of proposals right and so some of them are like very pro-industry some of them one that i'm particularly interested in is uh they're not talking just about expungement but about releasing people who have been incarcerated for simple possession because there's quite a few thousand wow people incarcerated for just possession in mexico yeah and so they're saying, like, if you're going to, you know, start regulating this, that's great. But this has to be part of the thing. And part of the, those people are also people who are um, groups of indigenous communities who, like, don't speak Spanish really well and who, of course, didn't have access to a lawyer or anything like that. And so, you know, there's language issues at play, too. So you did a story for Cannabis Wire. What's it like working for that publication, by the way? What's yeah, it? tell us a bit about, tell our audience a bit about Cannabis Wire. It's demanding and awesome. Um, <laughs> in what ways? It's um, I've worked at other places before, um, and I think this is somewhere where like, I routinely feel challenged. Um, I'm always learning, but I definitely I have three great editors, 
right? So we have our co-founders, but there's also Mike Hoyt, who's just like super patient. I do my best to like submit a good draft, but he'll always be like, you know, this could be better and this could be better. And it, it just, everything comes out way better. <laughs> and there's also like, I've done a few pieces where, like I did one on Colombia, on the uh, Canadian companies in Colombia. And it took a while. And they were very, they were patient about it. And I was freaking out, like, I should have, like, but it's hard to get people to talk to you and that kind of stuff. But also I just had to, like, learn about the history of Colombia, really, because I didn't know much about Colombia to speak to what was going on in terms of the context. Like, I could be like, oh, like, this legislation was passed and whatever. And there are some companies there, and that's interesting. And it's probably because it's, like, a nice climate, but there's a, there was a lot more going on. And they really gave me like the space to to look into. It. I think that that happens in general. Well, I I brought up Cannabis Wire because you had a story about uh, illicit sales, about shutting down illicit sales without repeating the war on drugs fiasco. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I wondered how possible that is. It sounds like a an approach or a philosophy, but is it even doable? I hope it is. <laughs> um, that particular piece came about because one of my editors every time we saw like a crackdown on a place she would send me a piece and I started like picking some of them too and then we started we kind of wanted to see all right well, so where are they happening and this is in LA yeah and so well I had some from like all over California but actually the city attorney released like, like I didn't have to beg for this information oh. they released um, two major crackdowns like the addresses the case numbers and I was like oh I wonder you know like where they are where they're happening and I didn't plot because I started doing it on Google Maps and I was taking forever. So I wrote his name down to make sure I didn't forget it. Mr. Ben Jay, he's our developer. I was like, hey, Ben, like, could you please you know, plot these? And then after he plotted like 100 and something, I was like, and also these. <laughs> um, then yeah, what we noticed was that the majority of the arrests for illicit sales were happening in areas that were historically part of or historically Overpoliced. Overpoliced, basically. So, like South LA. And these were basically unlicensed stores, not mm-hmm. street dealers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, well, yeah, like unlicensed stores. Yeah. So, is this just a function of those places being low hanging fruit? It's a lot easier to bust them than to, I don't know, take the troops off the border and send them up to Humboldt County, you know? It might be. I don't know what you guys think. I think the, like, I've talked to people, particularly like in South LA and East LA, who say, like, there's just so many of them. And they kind of, um, this is like people who kind of live in the area who probably don't um, consume cannabis, who say, you know, there's like five on one block or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting to me is that there's like over policing and then also like maybe like under policing in a way. Like, I don't think you're going to see five cannabis, maybe five is an exaggeration, but three shops on like one street in like a fancy part of West L.A. Right. No, I, I just moved to West Hollywood and was remarking to Alex that there's there are four within a mile area of mm. where I live. But today I was down in South L.A. in a block I won't name. Mm-hmm. There are like three dispensaries. Yeah. And I don't know how that happens. Do you have any idea? I think it's really fascinating. So I was like trying to do right. And I went to like the Department of Cannabis Regulations, like L.A. website. And I, I remember I, I was like, oh, like, where are the licensed shops? You know, I had a, a friend come in from town. So like, we're going to go to the licensed shop. And then we go, and it was closed. But there were, like, four other ones open, like, within blocks. And those were not listed. Yeah. Now, who's your sense of who owns these shops and who's running them? So the employees are very local, very friendly, very awesome. We peeped into a few of them. I don't want to 
I don't think I know enough to answer that question, but I have a feeling it's not local people who own those shops. Alex has heard me complain about this a lot, but the, the illicit market is so underreported upon. Mm -hmm. and drives me a little bonkers. I wanted to ask you just the obvious question. Speaking Spanish helps you a lot, mm -hmm. I'm assuming. It's a gift, know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, in the world it is, I'm trying. Yeah. But what about specifically in the cannabis beat? You know, Does it help you in specific ways? How so? If, if you're covering LA or if I cover Latin America, I, I can only imagine how much longer it would take to like read a piece of legislation and have to use like Google Translate. And then like, Google Translate is good, but it's never like nine, like 100%. And things have to be right if you're going to be publishing things. I, I don't think that if you don't speak Spanish, you can't get a story. I think that if you do speak Spanish, however, you can get to it faster. I did a piece last year on, on trimmers. Mm -hmm. And it was a barrier. It was definitely a barrier for mm -hmm. me to be able to um, get a story. And my quotes were truncated. And mm -hmm. so I feel like that, to me, was an inhib inhibition. And, you know, I feel like we don't have that many, we don't have that much representation yeah. of the... No, I see what you mean. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to disregard that at all. But, for instance, if you and I were working together and you were like, Julia, come help me out. And you have a good translator with you. There's still not going to be that, like, distance, right? Because there's, like, mm -hmm. the third person thing. But uh, I have a friend who covers, not cannabis, but he covers, like, well, he used to work for LA Weekly, but he covered, he did, like, all these, like, great stories about East LA, and his Spanish has improved, but it's not great, and it's because he has a pal who follows him around and translates for him, pretty mm -hmm. much. Okay. Um, so we'll be triangulating to yeah, figure yeah. out exactly who yeah. you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but I, I think you're right. Uh, I think, actually, you know what? I think you're more right than I am, because recently... I, I win. <laughs> you know, I think you're right. I think people should really, like in general, I'm, I'm really pro-learning languages. I'm trying to learn more languages because it's more immediate. There's, it's also cultural learning, right? And for the sake of accuracy, for the sake of speed, it's just good to know another language and, and connection above all. You, you know, five years ago, mm -hmm. probably, you know, trimming, it reminded me, trimming was probably the only agricultural labor in California that was sort of done by white people mm -hmm. and, and it was sort of high paid and yeah. now that's changing is, is, is my impression and it, have you seen a lot of that? Yes there was actually I'll send it to you guys and you guys can share if you want there's a really interesting podcast in Spanish about um, like fancy wealthy white skinned Mexicans who would like come for vacation in Northern California to trim um, which is really different from what other people have to go through, right? Like There's an entire about. podcast about this? Yeah. What's it called? Um, I, we're we're going to need to find this and link to it on I will our send show it to page. You. I can't yeah, think please. of it on top of my head, but I listen to a lot of podcasts in Spanish as well, and I thought that was fascinating because I expected a story about like migrants who had to cross you know, without documents and blah, but it wasn't. It was about fancy trimmers mm. um, and how the industry is changing now, and they're working more with people who are undocumented. And then in fact... Um, I know that the United Farm Workers Association is trying to get more involved with cultivation of cannabis. This has been so interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you guys. I had a blast. It was so did we. Well, that's our show for today. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News or email us at hello at weedweek.net. So Julia talked a little bit about the prohibition attitudes in minority communities. I think it'd be interesting if you told us your stories about that, if it's something you've experienced, if you have any particular insights on it. It's hello at weedweek.net. Or you can even reach out to us on Twitter. We're open. Yeah, Twitter and Instagram is Weed Week News. My kid only talks to me through Instagram. <laughs> also, don't forget to show us some love on iTunes by giving us a rating and leaving a five-star review. It helps new folks find the show, and we really appreciate it. 
For more Weed News, you can sign up for the Weed Week newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week Canada, and Weed Week California, all at weedweek.net. And they're all free. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Our producer is Hannah Smith, and Alicia Byer wrote our theme music. Additional music is from the late, great Andre Bush. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.